When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And in for Josh this week, I'm Scott Tobias. We were scum, trash, refuse that didn't fit into the system. Until someone had the bright idea of recycling us to serve science. That's Robert Pattinson in the trailer for High Life, the latest from Claire Denis. For 30 years, Denis has been one of the most acclaimed and provocative directors working in film, but she remains largely unknown here in the U.S. That could change with High Life. It's only the second English-language film from the 70-year-old French director. That, plus the film's deep space setting and stars Pattinson and Juliet Binot should get High Life an audience. And boy, are they in for it. They certainly are. This week on the show, Scott and I have a conversation with Denis and a review of High Life. Plus, we crown a new Film Spotting Madness champion. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Welcome officially to my guest host this week with Josh Larson out in Colorado doing that whole, you know, just doing the Ebert interrupt us thing. What we all do, just filling in for Roger Ebert. That's what he's doing. <laughs> you are filling the very large shoes of Josh Larson. He really does have big feet. He's a tall guy. <laughs> yes, so, he is. Nice to have you here. Scott, of course, co-host of The Next Picture Show and writer at large. Can really read you everywhere these days. You can. You can. It's exhausting. <laughs> We will link to some of those articles over at filmspotting.net in the notes for this show. And we'll talk a little bit more about your podcast and your next pairing as well. Scott is here by design. I needed a guest host, and I always love having you on, but also this being a Claire Denis-centric show. You're my Claire Denis expert. Okay. It's a burden that <laughs> I carry, but, uh, it's a big but, burden. but joyfully. You know, but fitting, because I don't know if you remember this or not. I'm I'm sure it was a very huge moment in your life. But it is fitting that you are here with me for this Claire Denis show, because as I've said, I'm a Claire Denis neophyte. I have a lot of work to do. High Life is the fifth Claire Denis film that I've seen. The first Claire Denis film I saw was 35 Shots of Rum at the Toronto Film Festival, sitting next to one Scott Tobias. <laughs> so you are with me the whole way yeah. as we consider Claire Denis, and we will definitely do that here. It's come full circle. In this show. But you, that's a, actually a really good one to start with. You think yeah. about like, 
where do I go? I mean, highlight may not be. We'll talk about it. But three five shots of rum is something you can really connect to mm-hmm. emotionally. It's got a great musical sequence in it. Highly recommended. Yeah. So we also saw this week the end of the NCAA's March Madness Tournament. We will give our obligatory congratulations to the Virginia Cavaliers, their OT win against Texas Tech, the Baylor Lady Bears for their victory over Notre Dame, though I'm I don't want to congratulate them because they just annihilated my Iowa Hawkeyes. That was <laughs> that was not pretty, unfortunately. But you're a basketball guy. You're you're one of those rare people who is in that crossover of yeah. film Twitter and basketball Twitter. Did yes. you bother to watch any of the college basketball? I did. I'm more of an NBA guy, as you know, but I but I, I did watch uh, both of those championship games. And and, and honestly, you know, the, both the, both tournaments had their share of really close, exciting, hotly contested games, and both of those championships delivered for mm-hmm. me. Unfortunately, Scott, there will be no more basketball talk on this episode. Mm. There will be more madness talk, though, as our own March Madness, Film Spotting Madness, also came to a close this week. We will crown the Film Spotting Madness Best of the 2000s champion later in the show in the final. Good competition here. Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Are they the Duke? They're the Duke of this tournament? I mean, I know they got beat early, but I'd say they're <laughs> I the Duke. I to associate I know. Paul Thomas Anderson with Duke. But if you think about how a lot of people feel about Duke, and then you think about Daniel Plainview, villains. Wow. Maybe it works. Okay. Maybe it works. This could be a whole other line of criticism here on Film Spotting. We could just try to equate films and their characters to basketball players. Scott, I think you're the guy for that podcast. Going up against Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Who plays Eternal Sunshine in the basketball well, landscape? Well, I would, I would say you'd, you'd have to put... Uh, Char- Charlie Kaufman would be your Zion Williamson type. Okay. I mean, just the dominant yes. screenwriter, right? Yes. But uh, beyond that, I don't really yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know. We look forward to any of your suggestions out there. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Scott and I also managed to make time to take our kids separately to Shazam this weekend. Would have been odd if you took mine and I took yours. Yeah. That that didn't happen. Criss so cross. Yeah, podcast listeners will get our thoughts on that. But first, director Claire Denis. The reason Scott is here, the reason we're all here, really, for this show, her career goes back to the mid-70s. She spent a decade working in a variety of capacities in some very notable films. And for some very notable filmmakers, we will touch on that, mainly in the 1980s. She worked with director Vim Vendors on Paris, Texas and Wings of Desire. Her directing debut came in 1988. It was Chocolat, not the one with Johnny Depp and not the one with Juliette Binoche, who is one of the stars. It's of very confusing. Film. It is. It's really confusing. Among her other 12 features are 2000's Beau Travai, 2008's 35 Shots of Rum, and last year's Let the Sunshine In. That one was with Binoche. Many of her films have been set in post-colonial Africa, where Denis came of age in the 1950s. Her latest, at least on the surface, is a significant departure. It's an English-language sci-fi film set in deep space. It's called High Life, and in the movie, Robert Pattinson plays a criminal serving a death sentence. Along with some other prisoners, he is sent on a doomed mission to extract energy from a black hole, which is really just kind of one of the plot strands of this film, and not that we would necessarily suggest you focus on any of the plot strands. Is that fair to say, Scott? That's true, though. It's actual science. It is. Yeah. Which Um, Miss Denis will touch on as well in a moment. uh, Yeah. you'd You'd think that extracting energy from a black hole would be just some crazy... 
sci-fi plot, but no, it's uh, there is some scientific basis for this plot, and that's called the uh, Penrose Principle. Yeah, which when I heard that, just kind of as an aside in the movie, I thought, well, someone just made that up. But no, they didn't make it up. I read in your review that it's a real thing. Yeah. So there you go. Actual science at the core of this film. Also at the core of this film is Juliette Binoche. She plays a kind of mad scientist who is obsessed with creating new life through artificial insemination. It does get pretty weird. It did not get weird at all with Claire Denis here in studio as no. we had a lovely chat with her yeah. about High Life and some of her other films. She even played the film Spotting Five. She was great. She really it was, was it great. Was, it's a, it was already kind of a life highlight for me just to meet her. Yeah. And she was. She could not have been more delightful. So yeah. um, really excited for people to hear that interview. I am too. And you are going to hear that conversation right now. The odds are not in our favor. But when my work is accomplished, when perfection is achieved, then what? Fly away? I know I look like a witch. You're Foxy and you know it. This mission can't turn our shame into some type of glory. I can't do this flying around no more. I want to go to the beginning of this a little bit. I have read that this was an idea that you've had for a while. It's a film you've been thinking about maybe for over a decade even. When you've been carrying an idea around for that long, how does it evolve over time? And what actually sort of triggers it into fruition? What, what has to align for a movie like High Life to finally be the next project you work on? Meeting with a producer, I think I have ideas like that floating, you know, and I don't believe that all of those ideas will become films, you know. They are there and we'll see. But one day I met a producer who lives in New York, Oliver Dungey, and he said, would you like to do a film in English? And I said, yes, maybe. And I proposed this idea. And he said, yeah, why, why not? Because the subject he wanted to me to speak about was femme fatale. Hmm. And I said, well, I think I have an idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it came. Now, you said not all ideas become films, and that certainly makes sense. Did you think High Life would always be a film? Is that how you always saw it? I, I thought, no. I thought, well, that's an idea, maybe. No, I, I was not sure. Mm -hmm. Not at all. But... Meeting Oliver made me think, yeah, this is the femme fatale for sure. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm sure you know that the filmmaker Barry Jenkins is a huge fan of your work, maybe the biggest fan of your work. I see yeah. a lot of comments from him. And uh, in the New Yorker profile, he had a really fascinating quote, I thought. He was talking specifically about Chocolat and, and race in, yeah. in that context. But he says, this is a first movie by someone who has not one question about what her rights are as a storyteller. So again, he's speaking in a very specific way there. But I wanted to extrapolate it a little bit and was just curious if, as a filmmaker, you feel any limitations or restrictions at all? Uh, or to put it in high life terms, is there anything that's too taboo for you to want to explore? Everything that comes in mind, the moment it comes in mm -hmm. mind, it exists, you know? So a taboo, it's something I could not foresee, maybe. A taboo that I could not foresee would stay a taboo forever. But... Uh, not filmmaking, but if you read all those tragedy, Greek tragedy, William Shakespeare, mm -hmm. I mean, the humanity is so rich, you know. I don't think a taboo is 
stopping an idea mm-hmm. or an idea is refraining a taboo. I wanted to circle back to something you said about this, the, the original idea for this film. Did it start with the Julia Binoche character? If you're saying femme fatale, like how do you, what was that idea? The femme fatale is the little girl. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, she's the femme fatale, in fact, because she changed everything for Monte's character. Um, no, uh, there was always Dr. Debs in, in the first version, and Dr. Debs was, I, I wanted, at the very beginning, I met Patricia Arquette, and we we had a great meeting, and I thought she was the the actress, but in the end, the film was postponed and postponed, and she couldn't wait anymore. And I just finished, I was finishing a film with Juliette, and she says, well, I can maybe try to replace her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned Patricia Arquette, and then I think of Juliette Bonoche's hair in the film, and there's kind of a, an earthiness to that character. Is that, yeah. is that what you're sort of going for? Yeah. When I, first time I met Patricia, she was having black earth under a nail, and she said, excuse me, I've been gardening all day. And I thought, that's it, you know? That's the kind of woman who maybe she did something horrible, but she she is very Earthian. And you wanted that in space, I mean, that contrast between space, which we so often associate with sterility, that kind of, or, I guess, organic quality? That kind of organic yeah, I mean, it, that earthiness. I mean, the film ah, starts with, yeah. with greenery. I mean, you don't associate ah, that with space. It's not greenery. It's a garden. It's a garden, mm-hmm. right. Ah, well, greenery, it's, a, you know. Okay. No, it, it's a real garden, and it's, I think it's, uh, I've read in Stephen Hawking's uh, project for space traveling, garden, a necessity, and also from him I learned that because uh, human life is short, I learned that probably to have baby in space would be a necessity too. And they invent, um, uh, how do you call it, uh, that thing to keep a, a baby protected, uh, an incubator. incubator. Mm-hmm. I- invent an incubator against radiation. Hmm. So all this I, I catch from those great books. You mentioned Hawking. I wanted to ask you, because I heard you recently answer a question about this, and you talked a lot about the science, actually, behind this movie and the conversations with astrophysicists. Yeah. You know, when you're making a film like this, I think for some filmmakers, that might be something that really intrigues them. And and a big reason why they dive into the work is they want to do that research and explore the scientific part. Others, maybe other filmmakers, it's just kind of part of the backdrop. It's not really what they're setting out to explore, but it's there. And, and it's just sort of necessary. How, how was it for you? How much did you really dive into that and were fascinated by that research? I think, number one, astrophysics is fascinating for sure. And I, I regret that my knowledge is so small. But on the other hand, to make a film without trying to recognize the territory of the film would be crazy. It's not caring for more knowledge. Is um, You cannot send actors in a space story without myself knowing things, you know, mm-hmm. that are part of the modern knowledge. 
I wanted to ask you about how we see that territory because uh, another question I heard a student ask you at last night's screening of the movie at the University of Chicago, they asked you about the camera movement in the film and that perhaps there was less in some of your other work. And, and you said something great, which is that it's not so much about trying to come up with a camera movement for beauty's sake as it is out of necessity and practicality. And this is a film that takes place in a prison. It's a yeah. confined space. So how how much of that sort of utilitarian aspect to filmmaking and just trying to do what what makes sense for the the particular film in that moment drives what you do versus trying to make it extravagant i have nothing against extravaganza but i think it's so important while shooting to be concerned physically by the movement of the camera by the the way everything is inside the story and not outside at a certain distance with elegance, but inside. Mm -hmm. For me, it's important, yeah. Mm. I associate so much of your work with emotion and with love and like that. I feel like that's such a huge presence in high life in a way that, again, I haven't seen that in space very often. Can you talk about just the emotion of the film, the kind of tone you were trying to set with it? I think that little baby girl, she is the beginning of a possibility to be alive for the character, Monte's character. For the first time, he can open his heart, his arm, and feel something very strong, overwhelming, and maybe it's his only escape. He's free, suddenly. This little girl bring him everything he was afraid of, protecting himself from, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's the only thing that that's that that suggests life, the possibility of something beyond. Because it's, there's there, there are this mission, this, this, this mission of oblivion, and uh, here's this thing that is that is new. Of course, of course, of course. And then he, he's maybe also a little bit afraid by it, of course. But she's not because she is born in that world and is the only human being with her. You know. Mm-hmm. So it makes a big difference. The actor playing Monty, Robert Pattinson, he was also in a movie called Good Time, the Safdie Brothers, who we had yes. in the studio for that movie. And they had high praise for him, not surprisingly. And coincidentally, perhaps uh, tying to Monty, they talked about the tenderness he brought to the role, to what they saw as a very hard character. And I think the same could be said of Monty, a, a tough guy, if you will. And they also praised his intensity, his spontaneity. Yeah, uh, and and the way he brought truth to every kind of scenario and story, and there he was playing a con man. Was your experience similar with him? Exactly, exactly. I I was a little bit shy. I was a little bit afraid. Maybe when I met him, I thought maybe he's too young, maybe he's too iconic. And then immediately I felt no. It was as if I knew him for a long time, and working with him was exactly like working with the people I'm used to work with, you know? There was no difference. Probably there was a big one for him. But he he never showed me... He he felt... He gave me trust Mm. in me, in him. Yeah, that's big. And he brings reality, but he also brings something else. A sort of... Something contains in him, a sort of mystery. He he, he never revealed... Everything, you know, 
I mm-hmm. think that's great. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely there, and maybe that's a good transition into my next question. I want to ask you about the the very end of the film, and this isn't a spoiler. I'm not going to get into the specifics of what we see, but if I'm remembering it correctly, the movie ends with a provocation with with two words with with shall Sh- we. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure any good filmmaker or artist purports to have all the answers and are, are putting them forth. But it seemed to me so elegant and such a concise statement on on your films and all of great art. This this idea of shall we shall we shall we do that? Shall we think that? Shall we engage with each other, with the world? Uh, it seems a fundamental shall, question. Shall we accept this moment of in the deep of the black hole called the singularity where I was told space and time collapse mm. is it maybe a sort of eternity you know mm. yeah. shall we believe in that right you know? right mm. I mean it's such the whole the whole film in a lot of ways is an elegant metaphor for your work too in the way space and time collapse have you, have you probably been hearing that a it's lot it's good but, uh, I was not thinking about no. that no it's good yeah would have yeah. been terrified. <laughs> <laughs> Along with Trouble Every Day, this is your only film in English or primarily in English. In both this film and Trouble Every Day, confound certain expectations that we might have as audience members for the genre in which they appear to be. Do you see them as connected in that in that sense? No, uh, actually, I never connected those film together. Maybe I thought it was another version of thirty-five shots of rum. You mm. know father and daughter, mm-hmm. but one story is on earth in a very concrete earthian life and the other is in a different, completely different way to experience life, you know. But I think trouble every day was really, I try to answer the question of the genre movie, mm-hmm. not with uh, high life. With high life, it was an idea I had in mind. It was mine, that story, for a long time. I never thought it was a genre movie. What's the difference for you working in, you know, not your primary language, working in English? Does that change your processes? Are there obstacles to that that you don't have otherwise? It's exhausting. Like just now when I'm speaking with you, you know, <laughs> I'm looking for the words. No, it's, it's, um, it's sometimes a little bit difficult, yeah. Yeah, because I'm not fluent. So sometimes... It slowed me down, and but it's also it's not the challenge that interests me, but it's meeting people. I love to speak another language. I love to to be allowed to meet people from different countries. So for that reason, yes, it's great. Hmm. So I, we have a lot of aspiring filmmakers who listen to this show and some young filmmakers, and I'm sure a lot of them revere your work. And I was reading about your background studying film in Paris, obviously, and then moving on. And you were involved in some productions, obviously, with some masters, Brisson, with Tarkovsky, Vim Benders, Jim Jarmusch. What, I, I guess the simplest question is, what did you take away from all that experience? Is there any, any one story from working with any of those filmmakers that, that for you was really formative? I think the, the some meeting, like meeting with Jacques Rivette, was very formative, that's for sure. And another French director called Robert Henricot, very formative. But with Robert Bresson, I was a student and I I was an extra, 
So I was on the set watching him, you know, mm. and I was too amazed that I was there. So, and with maybe Tarkovsky, it was a very short period of time. I was helping him with casting and there was not really a great relation. I I have a great relation with his films, but not with him. But maybe with Wim Wenders and Jim Jarmusch, I, I find they were so great human beings and the way they they, they wanted to I should I say the way they liked me mm-hmm. you know was um, something fantastic you know uh, working with Jim in Louisiana done by law mm-hmm. was an experience as not as a filmmaker as a human being you know I yeah. would have loved that fried catfish forever <laughs> and Vim was traveling with Vim is something that remind me a lot of my childhood I Vim uh, felt the necessity to move and traveling like my father did when I was a a kid in Africa and I share with Vim so much, so much um, music, image, feelings. Mm. Mm. I have to go back real quick. Do you have a favorite Bresson? Is there one that stands out? Robert Bresson? Yeah, Robert. I would say Pickpocket, maybe. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, going to close with a few questions. We just have a few minutes left. Kind of our, our rapid fire film spotting five. I'd love to know what's the last movie you saw in a theater that wasn't your own? Vice. Vice? What about a movie that you revisited recently? Uh, a, a Japanese movie by Imamura. I had to revisit the film to speak about it. I know only the title in French, Désir Meurtrier, not in English. Mm-hmm. And what else I revisited? A Wes Anderson movie. Yeah? Yeah. About uh, uh, Jacques Cousteau. Oh, Life Aquatic. Yeah. Yeah. I love that film. (laughs) (laughs) What about a movie that you find to be underrated, meaning most people around you or a lot of people you know don't enjoy it, but you love it? Wow. (sighs) I don't know how to answer that. So underrated. Is there a movie you you find yourself defending against other people much? Uh... Probably many, but it doesn't come to my yep. mind immediately. So I will make you late. <laughs> Maybe further. Sure, yeah. sure. Uh, mm-hmm. What about then any random movie you love? When you think about a movie you love, what comes to mind? Mm, would be a Nuzu movie. Um, late Spring. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Great choice. Last one. Your favorite book about the movies or about movie making? I don't have a favorite book about movie making, but I have a, a favorite books written by William Faulkner that, for me, brought me really toward cinema. Those emotion, those, I don't know, he, he writes in a way that immediately the film cinema surge 
Claire Denis, her new film is High Life. It is out now and recommended certainly by both of us. This was an absolute thrill to talk with you. Thanks Thank so much you. for being on I the show. I forgot the underrated film. You know what? We'll, we'll, we'll track you down at some other point. <laughs> yeah, Maybe okay, your next okay. film. We'll okay. have you back on. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is nothing to fear. Everything's going to be fine. Are you sick? You realize nothing is ever going to go inside us. Break the laws of nature. You'll pay for it. Our thanks again to Claire Denis, who was just so lovely to chat with. And of course, we will link to the films and all the other topics she touched on in the Film Spotting 5 over at filmspotting.net. You can find that and other Film Spotting 5s just by clicking on lists at the top of the page. It's funny, I had to confirm my booking here in the studio today, the time, to talk to Claire Denis and Carrie Shepard, who's a great reporter here and a longtime friend of the show, is the only person I know other than Golden Joe Dassault and Tyler Green, who is our producer for our live events. And both of those guys are out on paternity leave. So I needed some help. And Carrie chipped in and she was texting me and she said, I just need to know your guests' names. And I gave her the various names who were coming, including Claire Denis. And she wrote back, holy shit, Claire Denis. <laughs> and I wrote, exactly. That's kind of how I felt with her here in studio. Holy shit, Claire Denis. Hopefully you all enjoyed that conversation as much as we did having it. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get to some more thoughts on High Life and we will crown your 2019 Film Spotting Madness champ. Stay with us. I was alone until Paris, Back to more Claire Denis talk in a bit. But first, we do have a few housekeeping notes coming up next week on the show. We're going to discuss the film. You just heard a little bit of a clip from Elizabeth Moss as Becky something, the self-destructive lead singer of a 90s alt-rock trio. It's in Alex Ross Perry's new film, Her Smell. It opens in limited release, including here in Chicago next weekend. It's the film that we will discuss with Josh when he returns next week. Now, Scott, you yes. have seen Her Smell. Should we be excited about this one? I think so, especially if you're a fan of, of the director, Alex Ross Perry. It is his most ambitious film to date, for sure. Hmm. A lot of connections to certain rock star stories, particularly Courtney Love, and another great Elizabeth Moss performance. Yeah. They've collaborated previously on Queen of Earth. Also, Ross Perry is responsible for The Color Wheel, Golden Exits, and Listen Up, Philip. Actually, he was on the show back when Listen Up, Philip came out. Him and Jason Schwartzman, one of the stars, both. That was a fun conversation. We will link to that in our show notes if you are curious and want to brush up a little bit on your Alex Ross Perry. Also next week, we will kick off our four-film 
Stanley, Donnan, Marathon. It's going to begin with 1949's On the Town. That's extremely exciting to me. I, I do occasionally write these uh, recommendation lists for the New York Times. They're sort of pre-obituary lists. I mean, uh, and so so uh, that list actually got published finally because uh, Donan did pass away earlier in the year. But uh, that was one of the most fun I had watching a filmmaker's work because uh, there's so, just so much joy and, and variety mm-hmm. to his work. I think you're going to have a good time with this marathon. Yeah, very excited about it. On the Town is available to rent on most platforms, or of course, we love to plug getting it at your local library. More information about this marathon is available at filmspotting.net slash marathons. And with the type of work that Donnan did, musicals, comedy, it should be a nice change of pace after our last one. Not that it wasn't a very good and enjoyable and fruitful marathon. That was John Cassavetes. And one of the highlights of that marathon was kind of discovering, in a way, Seymour Cassell. Obviously, most of us probably discovered him, if not sooner, in Rushmore, the Wes Anderson film, as Max Fisher's father. But, of course, go back to his collaborations with Cassavetes, including being Oscar-nominated for his role in 1968's Faces. He played Chet, and that was the movie that began our marathon. Unfortunately, Seymour Cassell passing away earlier this week at the age of 84. What's your favorite Cassell performance? One come to mind, Scott? Faces is is a good one. I You know, it's interesting to, to be able to kind of catch... Cassell at different points in his career because I'm sure it was a revelation for you to see him, you know, younger and really was. In, 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 in a much livelier context than maybe people who encountered him in uh, Wes Anderson's work. Yeah, I actually made the joke during our Faces discussion that I didn't know Seymour Cassell was ever young. I always <laughs> just imagined him about that age, the age we see him in Rushmore. He was also memorable in 1976's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie and was also in Cassavetti's Shadows, Minnie and Moskowitz, and Love Streams, which unfortunately were not part of that marathon. In addition to Rushmore, Wes Anderson also used him in The Royal Tenenbaums and The Life Aquatic. So definitely wanted to mention that passing of Cassell. And if you haven't had a chance to catch up with some of his previous work, his great work in those Cassavetti's films, we definitely encourage it. I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. Lucky for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, film spotting badness is not hand-to-hand combat. Also, bowling pins are not on the list of accepted weapons. Daniel Day-Lewis, of course, in Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. Blood and Eternal Sunshine were the final two films, the last two films standing in film spotting badness, best of the 2000s. If you were following along, or at least were part of this at the beginning, Scott, and saw the 64 film list. Yeah. You probably wouldn't have been shocked to find those two films as the last two. Not at all. Those are, those are both fine films and a nice, nice variety. Good yeah. Do- uh, you know, you, you get different flavors with those movies. For sure. So let's share the road to the finals here. Eternal Sunshine beat Gus Van Zandt's Elephant, Pixar's Finding Nemo, Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, and the number one overall seed. Eternal Sunshine took down the Cone Brothers. No Country for <laughs> Old Men. There Will Be Blood beat Joe Wright's Atonement, my beloved Atonement. Amelie, Christopher Nolan's Memento, Coron's Children of Men, and The Fellowship of the Ring. We got this great email just a day or two ago from William Leshper. He's in Simsbury, Connecticut, by way of San Francisco. Subject line was, 
OMG, Film Spotting Madness just made me jump up and down and shout inside of Costco. And that's really the effect we're going for every week here on the show. Adam, Josh, Film Spotting Nation. I always adore Film Spotting Madness, but this year has far exceeded my enjoyment of years past. The final four being comprised of the reputed two best films of the decade, No Country and Blood, and my personal two favorite films of all time, Fellowship and Eternal Sunshine. That alone made me proud to be a part of this film spotting fellowship of fans. But the moment Eternal Sunshine upset No Country, I put down my $1.49 Costco hot dog and started jumping up and down, pumping my fist in the air. That was a glorious film spotting moment. And to all Costco shoppers, I thank you. I love you guys. You are a golden god. Well, that was fantastic fun to read that, William. I hope... No one escorted you out of the building. I, I think there's, that. I think there's just a general excitement over the low, low prices for hot dogs at uh, Costco, for sure. This one, Scott from Dion in East Lansing, Michigan. Champions, whether they be movies or basketball teams, gotta have heart to take it all the way. There is no doubt that there will be blood as a masterpiece of skill and craft, but it doesn't have an iota of the heart that Eternal Sunshine does. The heart wants what the heart wants. I am voting for the lovers. Joel and Clementine. Fair enough. Kirsten from Calgary says, I love movies. I love 95% of the movies that were in this exercise of agony you set up for us. I think that should really be the tagline. (laughs) Film Spotting Madness, an exercise of agony. But few movies are tattooed literally on me. Okay, the line is originally from Alexander Pope's poem, Eloisa to Abelard, but still, I refuse to live in a world where eternal sunshine of the spotless mind does not exist. Wow. Mitka Alperovitz. If I was to make a ranking of films, I would place There Will Be Blood higher than Eternal Sunshine. However, this is film spotting madness. If we accept the, quote, throw into the fires of Mount Doom, quote, framing, then rewatch appeal is bumped way up on the list of analytic criteria. For me, this puts Eternal Sunshine safely in the claws of the giant eagles. And while I will mourn the loss of There Will Be Blood, it puts that title back up for grabs it will allow me to once again enjoy bowling and milkshakes. <laughs> Final comment here from John Dembski. If There Will Be Blood were a painting, it would be 17 feet high, 26 feet wide, and protected by a velvet rope hanging in the Met in a room all by itself. Daniel Plainview drinks all our milkshakes. The final word there on this matchup. And in fact, Scott, that is how it comes out with Daniel Plainview. That competition in him mm-hmm. paid off all the way to the Film Spotting Madness 2019 championship. There will be blood winning, but it was close for all you supporters of Eternal Sunshine, and we are among them as well. I mean, my vote went to There Will Be Blood, but I love Eternal Sunshine. It was close, 53% to 47%. That's tight. And I'd have trouble actually choosing between the last three PTA movies myself. I mean, Phantom Thread. Yeah. Don't doubt it. Well, wait for next year. (laughs) Film Spotting Madness 2020, when we have the best of the 2010s, a little bit more on that in a second, you're going to have at least two PTA movies, maybe three. Actually, I think three in that Film Spotting Madness. Okay, the third place matchup, which I don't know if on our last show we talked about this. I feel like I forgot to plug it, but every year we do like to go ahead and have the consolation match. Let's see which film emerges third. Let's, Let's do this right and really rank them one to four. So... The two losers of the final four competed against each other. Fellowship of the Ring versus the Coen brothers, No Country for Old Men. Lou Minotti wrote in and said, in the long run, sometimes third is better. 
When you're number one, heavy lies the crown. As a Best Picture Oscar winner, No Country for Old Men has had to endure years of resentment and accusations of being overrated. For 12 years, some have resented that There Will Be Blood didn't win. Well, it may finally have its year, and now it can experience being resented and eventually dethroned. So (laughs) that may be how it plays out with There Will Be Blood. For now, No Country is going to add to its Oscar list. Not only is it a Best Picture winner, but it's a third-place finisher in Film Spotting Madness. I'm sure the Cone brothers are elated. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody likes playing consolation matches as it is. Fairly close. I actually probably would have predicted a wider margin here. Of course, I never would have predicted that the Fellowship of the Ring made it past the Sweet 16, much Mm. less going to the Final Four. 61% to 39% is how this one finished. People people like the, you know, it was a huge hit. A lot yeah. of people turned up to see those uh, Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, you are absolutely right. So our congrats to Paul Thomas Anderson and everyone involved in the making of the best film of the 2000s, which does mean it's already time to start planning Madness 2020, the best of the 2010s. You'll recall last year we finally took some listener advice and we jumped on this early. Rather than waiting to announce the titles, basically at the start of Film Spotting Madness and not giving listeners any time to prepare to do their homework, to watch them. We put out way in advance, I think right after the first of the year, we put out the list, maybe even before that, we put out our short list, we called it. It was about 85 titles that we thought would be in contention. And based on feedback and over time, that shifted a little bit, but it did seem to work this year. Listeners enjoyed having that time to plan. So Sam and I, concurrently with Film Spotting Madness, our producer, we have been working on the 2020 shortlist already. And our goal, it's been a struggle, as you can imagine, looking at the best films of this decade so far. And we still have this entire year to factor in. It's been a struggle to try to narrow it down to 100 movies. I mean, only 64 are going to make that final bracket with play-ins, maybe 75 to 77. So we're going to have to cut out 20 to 23 movies. But we want to give a big short list, a long short list, if you will, so that people can catch up with some of the films that are definitely going to be in contention and maybe some blind spots over the years that they have needed to make amends for. So we're trying to get it to 100. And I'm so glad, Scott, that Josh isn't here this week because (laughs) if he knew what we were about to do, this was not vetted through him. If he knew that we were about to have play-ins for the play-ins, he would be aghast. It would probably just throw his mic down and leave the studio. But that's what we're going to do. This was my idea, and Sam actually went along with it somehow. Basically, to give you a little bit of backstory, as we are trying to narrow it down, as we said, to 100 movies, you start realizing, well, who are some of the filmmakers that maybe we've overlooked or left out who, even if we don't like so much, maybe they still need to be in the mix when you're thinking about the last 10 years. So who does Sam bring up? Your favorite and mine, Scott. Alejandro Gonzalez in Yari 2. Didn't even make the original shortlist. Sam guilted me into it. He's won two Best Directing Oscars yeah. this decade, right? So he's got to be considered. But Sam and I are pretty adamant that Birdman and The Revenant, they're not both even going to make the shortlist. <laughs> one of them's going to make the shortlist, and one of them's probably going to make the tournament. We'll see. But not both of them. So we're throwing it out to you already. You can vote at filmspotting.net slash madness. Filmspotting.net slash madness. Which movie should make the shortlist from Inyari 2? Birdman or The Revenant? What say you, Scott? <laughs> I know you love both uh, as much as I do. I, well, I, I would say The Revenant I prefer to Birdman, but Birdman won Best Picture. And, you know, yeah. So you gotta, maybe you got to consider that. Well, I'm actually going Birdman because I think 
I do enjoy that picture more ultimately than The Revenant. (laughs) And as much as I love DiCaprio, generally, I really do like Keaton a lot in that performance. Mm -hmm. And all the backstage theater stuff, I'll take that over the slog through the snow in The Revenant and the bear fights any day of the week. So my vote is going to Birdman. But oh, we're not done. There's more fun. We're not going to let everyone quit Film Spotting Madness cold turkey. We're going to give them some more... Methadone? Voting, exactly. This is our version of, of Methadone. Star Wars. What do you do with Star Wars? you got another one coming out. You, of course, have The Force Awakens, and you have Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. Both should be at least considered for the shortlist, but at least for me and Sam, and I'm sure we will hear from some who agree and some who strongly disagree. Wait, people have opinions on Star Wars? Yeah, I know, it's crazy, right? But we think only one of them should probably be on the short list. We need to work a lot of great films into this list. So, we're going to let listeners vote. They get to decide. It's The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi. Do you have a clear preference, Scott? Uh, I do. I I like uh, The Last Jedi by by some distance. I will take that over the acceptable Star Wars cover that is uh, The Force Awakens. (laughs) Well, dang it. I knew you weren't going to be with me on this one, and I'm not even sure I'm with me on this one because certainly I think about The Last Jedi, and I can instantly flash back to several images and sequences from that movie that are so much more memorable than anything in The Force Awakens. Mm -hmm. Did I have, and this is so boring to say, fewer problems with The Force Awakens, yeah, it was probably more fun for me. But, of course, I think the filmmaking on display in The Last Jedi is better. So it's it's a toss-up for me. It really is a toss-up, and we will go ahead and see how that one comes out for listeners. If I had to vote right now, just going on, I suppose, my boring star rating, The Force Awakens would get the edge. Okay. What about superhero movies? Now, Marvel is going to be represented. Don't worry. Superhero movies are going to be represented. But when you look at some of the most beloved films of the past 10 years and movies that were also popular, at least one of these was very, very popular, and movies that a lot of people credit with changing the superhero genre in a way, Deadpool with the R-rated comedy and Logan in terms of just making essentially what people say a full-blown Western as a superhero movie, we are pitting them against each other in a duel. Only one can survive. It's either the mouth of Deadpool or those those aging claws, those weakened claws of Wolverine. Which one do you go with, Scott? Um, wow, you're talking about two movies on the opposite ends of the uh, irreverent superhero movie spectrum. It's Logan and a walk for me. I'm not a, yeah. not a Deadpool person. So uh, uh, Logan, I, I appreciated the tone of it. I appreciated it as a Western and uh, I think think it's distinct. This is, again, one of those boring star rating types of questions, because in terms of just overall kind of pleasure I took from the film, Deadpool does get a slight edge Mm. for me. But I know Logan, like The Last Jedi, is a more ambitious film. I suppose I would like to see Logan advance. Finally, we've got The Avengers. Again, the MCU is going to be represented, everyone. Do we really need to go with The Avengers and Avengers Infinity War? We don't think so. We're going to make them battle each other out Civil War style <laughs> and see how it plays. Do you have a clear favorite poor, there? Poor Age of Ultron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Age of Ultron's not even getting the recognition. To me, it would be the, that, that first Avengers. I think things have gotten a little out of hand. You do? I do. So I, do, I, but, am... but I think it's like a thing where if you like those movies, maybe more is more. Yeah. 
man, I should not publish my MCU ranking. It shouldn't be available to people on Letterboxd because I am so down on these Avengers movies. Very unpopular opinion mm-hmm. here. I do have the first Avengers movie rated below Infinity War, hmm. near the bottom of my favorite MCU films. So I guess if I have to pick, it's Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> All right. It's to me uh, MCU is always uh it's it's high floor low ceiling for me. It's just it's very hard. You have to get pretty granular to say which is better than 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 the other. Yeah. I'm I'm with you there and we look forward to hearing more from listeners on the MCU as we get to our poll question, but quickly that reminder, filmspotting.net/madness. And we're going to give you more than a few days. We're going to give you at least a week to weigh in on this. This is important. We're deciding what films are in contention. For Film Spotting Madness 2020, we should have asked Claire Denis about it. I'm sure she would have weighed in. And she probably would have. She probably would have, actually. She was very amenable. So we might have been able to pull that off. But just go to filmspotting.net slash madness. Vote in these polls. You get to decide which of these four movies are going to get kicked off the not-so-short short list. That poll question, then, as we are looking ahead to Avengers Endgame, going to have that review here in a couple of weeks on the show. We want to know your MCU bona fides. The options are, I've seen them all, so you're the proud completist. Uh, yeah, I've seen them all. <laughs> you're the reluctant completist. I've seen most. This means you probably haven't and maybe never will see The Incredible Hulk or Thor The Dark World. I've seen maybe half. You've seen Iron Man and the ones with Groot, maybe. Maybe, though, you haven't seen Doctor Strange or the Ant-Mans, the Ant-Men, whatever you want to go with there. <laughs> Or is it I've only seen a few, so, you know, you've seen Black Panther and maybe one more. Or are you the person who's always telling people that I've never seen a single MCU film? In fact, I claim not to know what MCU even means. Now, this isn't really a fair question to us because we kind of have to see these (laughs) movies. But where do you fall? Ugh. Yeah, I've seen them all. You're the reluctant completist. I am the reluctant completist. So I'm mostly a reluctant completist, but I'm not completely. I'm not a completist because there is still one that remains elusive and that I will never see. So I guess I have to go with I've seen most. What's the one? I just don't think, unless my sons, who are now becoming more and more enamored with the MCU, unless they urge me to watch this with them, I don't know that I'll ever make time for Thor The Dark World. Well, how, how do you know what's going on in Thor Ragnarok? Because it's 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 Taika, and you know he's just doing what he wants to do anyway, right, Scott? Yeah, so no, true. I was I was fine somehow, despite not having seen Thor: The Dark World. I'm going with I've seen most. Then we want to know which you think. You can vote in that poll at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment in the poll, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Daily bats. I choose you as champion. So my powers will become yours. Shazam. Wait, for real? Say the key! We go from the MCU to the DCU? Is that simply what they call it? DCEU. Oh, DCEU. Extended Universe. I thought that was a Brexit thing. I was totally lost. (laughs) DC Extended Universe with that clip from the trailer for Shazam. Out now, in wide release, doing very well at the box office, and doing very well, maybe a little bit surprisingly, among critics. Last glance at Rotten Tomatoes, 91%. So I ask you, Scott, as I don't believe you've reviewed this movie, whether you're on board 
or are you going to try to take Shazam down? <laughs> I'm on board. I'm on board. I think it's, uh, I'm always happy when you get a superhero movie that is like what I imagined a superhero movie might be when I was a kid, something something light and, and fun and fast moving. It is 132 minutes, which is absolutely criminal. <laughs> uh, and I don't think it really justifies that length. But, but when you have Zachary Levi out as Shazam buying beer and eating junk food and getting into trouble, the movie has a lot of fun. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. I enjoyed it. I took my son, my soon-to-be 12-year-old son, and we both had a great time with the movie. Zachary Levi is someone who is completely unknown to me. I've seen the face. Chuck. But yeah, no, no I didn't Chuck. watch Chuck, so mm-hmm. I, I was coming in completely fresh on him as an actor. And he's obviously charming and full of charisma. And comedically, he has great timing and is a great physical presence on screen as well. And how that physicality ties back to the comedy, it all really works. And I think the relationship, the core relationship here between both the young Billy Batson and the older Billy Batson as Shazam really works with the Freddie Freeman character who's played by Jack Dylan Grazer. That's a good core for the heart of this film. And there is a lot of heart to this movie in addition to it being pretty charming and funny. By the end of it, I'll say I was very surprised at how just a little bit dusty it was getting in the theater the moment that you know the whole film was building up to. It's not like there's any grand surprise here. Maybe you don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but you know the general direction it's going to try to head in terms of uniting these two storylines of realizing his superhero potential, but also discovering who he really is and the sense of family and the sense of home. You know that it's going to culminate there some way, and I think the way it does it is really satisfying, way more satisfying than I thought it would be. Yeah, I mean, to have that as the emotional core of not just misfits, which we're used to seeing in these types of movies, but kids who are who are orphans, who are part of this foster family, who don't necessarily mesh quite yet as a, a complete unit, you know, getting to that place where, where they're, they're getting closer and working as a team. And there's something very satisfying emotionally about mm-hmm. that. Uh, the, the film pays off quite, quite nicely. And I mean, and I'm far more interested in that material than, say, the villain or the seven deadly sins mythology. Yeah. I just, I don't care about any of that stuff. It's just there to kind of push up against. Yeah. And it, I will say as, as charming for the third time, I'll use that word and mostly delightful. The film is, I did appreciate that it brought a little bit of that darker element to it, whether or not you care about the monsters and the seven deadly sins. That is where I would say I considered bringing my almost nine year old son along. And not that I think he scares too easily, but I think it was a good call not to bring him. I think it's PG 13. And I think mostly that kind of 12 and above is probably just for whatever my opinion's worth. That's probably where the sweet spot is. Yeah. I was a little deflated too. I have kids as well, a a seven year old and a, and a, 11-year-old, and I was, the 11-year-old would be fine, but I did think, boy, in so many regards, this film is such a movie that small children could get into, but it does have those darker elements, which again, I appreciate in in, in the abstract, but in the practical sense that I want to take my kids to see this movie, exactly. it, it, it becomes a problem. Yeah, I'm with you, but in terms of darker, not just kind of the horror aspect, if you will, or what might scare a kid, I did really appreciate where it went as far as the storyline with the mother character and Billy Batson being lost, someone who's Mm. looking for his mother. And I'll just say the way that does ultimately pay off surprised me for, for what is it's PG 13, but is a kid's movie. It's, it's popcorn entertainment. And it kind of surprised me in terms of how I suppose realistic it chose to portray that. Definitely. Definitely. That's a good point. So we recommend 
Shazam. We're just full of recommendations this week. And Scott, actually, your podcast, your podcast that's part of the film spotting family of shows, mm-hmm. is the great Next Picture Show. If you're not subscribed, please, everyone, take a moment to do that. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, of course, Apple Podcasts and iTunes, or learn more at nextpicturershow.net. And you're actually going to give a little bit more time and focus to Shazam this week. You've got a double pairing that I love, of course, big, the obvious connection mm-hmm. to that film. In fact, so obvious that they call it out directly in the movie, Yeah, there's a, which there, I had to explain to my son, Quinn. There's a piano there. Yeah. You, yeah so it, it is a, a nice, fruitful connection. And there's such an interesting compare and contrast there in terms of their the agendas they bring. I mean, you do have this fantasy of, of a early teenager getting to be an adult and all, all of the um, excitement and, and, you know, scariness that comes mm-hmm. along with that. But uh, the film's approaches are so different. So it's, a, it's one of those types of pairings that we really love. Yeah. Which one of your colleagues between Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky is on keynote duties this week? That's me. I'm, I'm hosting You're doing the keynote. It's all me. Okay. So week one, episode one starts with you basically giving us a good setup, a prompt for the entire conversation, the entire two-part conversation, and you will focus on Big, and you guys will talk about that this week, and then next week, the focus on Shazam. Exactly. And if you like what you hear, we we have started to post the the keynote part of our podcast on the site as like an essay. Yeah, basically. And you can, again, find that at nextpictureshow.net. If you're a subscriber to the Film Spotting newsletter, filmspotting.net slash newsletter, our producer and newsletter producer, Sam Van Halgren, has been linking to those keynotes as a way to promote the Next Picture Show. And I've already said to you and Keith, giving you a little bit of grief, but of course the compliment is genuine, that the writing, and it goes obviously for all four hosts, the writing in those keynotes is so top-notch. So if you want to check it out in written form and then also hear how that is the prompt for that entire two-part conversation, I encourage you to do that. Next Uh, Picture Show. Thanks so much. Yeah, .net or again, wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to take one more quick break. When we come back, a few more thoughts on Claire Denise High Life. Stay with us. Moving backwards. Yeah. Even though we're moving forwards. Getting further from what's getting nearer. Robert Pattinson, again, in Claire Denis' High Life. We chatted with the great Claire Denis earlier in the show, talking about her experience working with Robert Pattinson, among other topics. I'm curious if anything she said helped you process High Life further or better, Scott, this is a movie you have seen twice. Is that I correct? Have, yes. Okay, so you've had a couple goes at this film. Definitely 
on one level, a very simple film, but a complex film. She is not interested as a filmmaker in spoon-feeding you anything. There are a lot of different strands and ideas thrown out in this movie. Sometimes they're thoroughly explored. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're introduced, and you have to do the work to figure out how that may fit into some of the larger themes and ideas she's exploring. We've mentioned this, that it's only her second. Some people say it's her first English-language film, but actually Trouble Every Day is a movie that is largely in English still, as she touched on. It's not familiar to her. It's not how she normally works. And certainly a genre she's not used to working in, though she is working with one of her usual collaborators, not only actually on the music, Tindersticks, but Jean-Paul Fargeau, who co-wrote the film with Denis, as he usually does. I bring all that up to ask you sort of where you put this film in Denis' larger body of work. Not worried so much about the ranking, but is this a movie that you consider up there with her best films? I'm not sure about that. I wouldn't necessarily go that far, though. It certainly helped to see it a second time to clarify my thoughts on it a little bit. I think it's one of her more difficult films, really? which is interesting to me that, that you have this movie that is surely her largest swing as far as a U.S. audience might be concerned. It has Robert Pattinson in the lead. It is science fiction, though she will deny (laughs) that characterization. Yeah, I don't think we used the word in the interview. We did not. We did not. I think we we, we avoided that for a good reason. But yeah, so it's it's difficult. It's a difficult film. It's not necessarily one that I would start with. If you've never seen a Claire Denis movie, I would kind of go with something like Friday Night or 35 Shots of Rum, which are much simpler love stories. But it has it has all those elements that you expect from her movies. Uh, the elliptical mm-hmm. use of time that you know, gives you a lot to unpack. I mean, I was not surprised and also kind of grateful that she didn't try to unpack her, her, her own movie. She's right. not really that type. I think she really wants to give, give audiences a chance to experience it and kind of groove on the associative mm. qualities of the film. Yeah. So I appreciated that. And, I, and as far as my own reaction to, to High Life is concerned, I appreciate it as much for what it isn't than what it is. It, it's such a defiant film as far as a movie goes about space travel. We are used to movies about space being sterile, cold, emotionless. Mm-hmm. And here's a movie that is that opens with a shot of a garden and then cuts to a shot of a crying baby, right. which is a very surprising thing to see in space. Yeah. And then you cut to to Robert Pattinson outside the ship dropping a, a wrench, and it really looks like gravity is is what is pulling that that space wrench down. It does. Not, it's not floating out there. Right. So, so I think there's just— It's more metaphorical. Right. She is, <laughs> just, not she is really just kind of like defying everything that you thought you understood mm-hmm. about the way these movies are supposed to work, and, and that's kind of productive yeah. and fun. Yeah, I want to come back to that moment specifically for me because I loved that introduction to this film. But this was, even though it was my fifth film of Denise that I've seen— for me, it actually felt kind of like I was watching the first film of hers. And maybe that's because partly I was preparing for an interview with her. So I had to be a little sharper. Mm-hmm. But the previous four experiences, like I mentioned, 35 Shots of Rum with you at the Toronto Film Festival, which those festival experiences are hit and miss, right? Sometimes they're fantastic and extremely memorable. Sometimes because it's part of a festival, it was yeah. the assassination of Jesse James experience I had the first time. Because it's at a festival and you're so worn down and exhausted, you probably don't give it the full attention that it deserves. That was the case there. Okay. Beau Travai, Yeah. I'm pretty sure I watched on an airplane on my laptop. Okay, I'm just saying. Th- these are all my <laughs> so, faults. This hurts me to hear. If I, if I appreciated these previous four films, and I did, but didn't swoon over them, 
that's my fault, but it's also partly because of the experience. I saw that one on an airplane. I watched white material on a DVD screener, just cramming it in for end of year awards and Mm -hmm. top 10 lists. And actually, Let the Sun Shine In was similar last year, crammed it in in December. So I could say that I've seen it. And it wasn't one I went crazy for, even though it was Juliet Binoche. So for me, in a lot of ways, this was the most attention I've ever been able to give to a film. And maybe it was because of those expectations. This is where I appreciate sometimes expectations being set just based on casual conversations like texts with you or texts with other people who had seen the film, all telling me how complex and challenging and truly bizarre it is. That's all accurate. But going in with that mindset, I was then a little bit surprised, actually, at how accessible it was. Okay. <laughs> like the basic core of this story, it really is about this group of prisoners in space. The focus, of course, on Robert Pattinson and the way it darts around in time can be a little bit confusing. And you're certainly going to have a lot of questions about exactly what is going on in some moments. But really what it's about is this relationship between him and his daughter and how he is existing, choosing really to exist in this world where there's no hope and it's total bleakness. And that's what I actually really responded to. There's a moment right at the beginning of the film where we see him enter a log. He has to do a fingerprint thing and basically leave a message about how the whole mission is going. Mm -hmm. And only when he does that, an alarm goes off every night. They basically have to ask someone for permission to stay alive. There's a moment where... (laughs) By saying the mission's going successfully, then they get permission to have the life support systems continue to go on. And that that hit me so hard, actually, Scott, because it was this moment where you realize that in these conditions, in some way, this is the experience we all have. It's just not that defined where this is a choice. He has a choice every day to decide whether or not he wants to continue living. And he really has no reason other than this kid. Yeah. To continue to go on living. It would be so easy for him at some point to say, you know what? I'm not going to do it. Well, potentially the survival of humanity would be a reason as well. Though, do you think he it? cares about that? His Monty character cares about that? <laughs> I'm just so saying, much? I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> yes. So, so I'm, I'm just like to follow up. I'm curious to ask if you knew the premise of the film going in. No, I really just knew So you knew were that, totally blank. Yeah, I knew Benoche was in it. I knew Pattinson was a prisoner i think and his daughter was involved that's okay. all i knew okay because because that to me that that took some catching up and in, in that typical denise fashion of of her not giving you every piece of that story and she right, definitely does not right out right. front and you sort of ha- so you have to catch up and you're going you're starting pretty late in the overall timeline mm-hmm. and you're and you're moving back and forth so there's that acclimation period but i think what what, what you said about the conditions under which you watch her films is so important because they have this mesmeric quality to them when they're good and they're always good because if you are distracted or you're seeing them less if you're tired at a film festival or you're seeing them on a, on a laptop or you're trying to squeeze them in before mm-hmm. your end of the year list you're not quite giving them the attention that they seem to demand of you and, really and, do. and I don't and I almost don't want to make it seem as if being demanding is her thing I don't think it is I think it really is just about like having this of connecting with the film on an almost like a biological yes, level yes. Uh, and really being m- moved along by it because the rhythms of it are so different from what you're seeing. But the yes. rhythms exist and are very carefully mm-hmm. calculated on her part. No, I think that's very well said. And I also don't really want to give the impression that this film is work. 
Of course it is, like any good art should be, but I didn't feel like it was in any way a slog. I was actually really on board, pun intended, with this film and this story the entire time. And maybe the filmmaking was part of it, even though, as she talked about in our interview, it's not a case where she is necessarily going out of her way to be ostentatious. And yet, in the subtle ways she's crafted this story, it's incredibly effective. And that opening sequence where we are introduced, you're so right. How many space movies have we seen that begin with the, the grandeur and isolation of space and the, the grandiosity of the ship, whatever vessel it is, and we're introduced to kind of the different technology, and then maybe we get into the characters. This right away starts on this garden, yeah. and all that earthiness, all that green, and then goes to that baby, and you're right, it is a shock immediately to see that baby, and I love the element of that makeshift crib. <laughs> you can tell right away that, that they never intended to have a crib in space. He had to come up with a way. I mean, as a father— I immediately thought about, now, where is he exactly, and how does he trap this baby? So much of our time as parents when they're young is just like, how do we keep them contained, right, so they don't yeah. hurt themselves or anyone else? And he's come up with this makeshift. It's a pack and play. Pack and play. That's what it is, right? <laughs> but we only hear him at first. We don't see him. And that shot from the baby in the crib to then just a simple cut to him outside, the first shot of space we see is just a guy basically as if he's any other father working on the roof yeah. with his kid inside in, in the kid's room. And he's talking through the speaker. But you know, you're, you are aware of the blackness that surrounds him and that sense of isolation and how, how one misstep could completely change everything. And when that, that wrench falls, yeah. it, it is. It's so striking. It looks like it's fading away. You think about how many times you've, you've done something like that and, oh, Got to get off the ladder because I'm such a handyman, Scott. Um, <laughs> I got to get off the ladder and go pick that up, right? Except there's no, there's no picking that up. There's no sense of that at all no. in space. So there are very high stakes always at play here in this film. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily a funny movie or that she's going out of her way to be humorous. But that doesn't mean there aren't elements that don't provoke some laughter. I would say even the great visual moment that is the credit sequence, which is, we can say, because it's not spoilers, it's people, former prisoners who are just kind of floating yeah. in space. Falling and that's, down, down. Yeah, falling down. Again, space. But it says high life over the top yeah. of that, right? As they're, as they're floating in that air, as they are falling in that, well, lack of air, I suppose. So mm -hmm. it is a really kind of cheeky visual moment, but one that also is like the whole movie, really evocative. Yeah. It, it's full of wonderful touches like that. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing that strikes me most about this movie, you know, and again, in contrast with with other movies of its kind, is just how emotional it is, and how uh, you know it's full of this organic material, as we talked about about this this greenery. But there's also, you know, sperm and spit and blood and it's milk. A, Milk. Mother's milk. <laughs> there is mother's milk. God, I forgot about that. How yep. could I forget about that? Um, so all of that material is there, and it's, it's a very deliberate choice on her part to have that present. But it's yes. all, again, stuff we don't see associated with space. We don't see life, the, the notion of life continuing, especially on this mission to oblivion, as being something that would be in a film like this. Either. No. this that defiance. I mean, there's, a, there's such a defiant attitude to this entire project of just like, I'm going to make a movie set in outer space that is going to be unlike anything you've ever seen. Right. It's going to have all these elements and all this passion, and, and it's going to have violence, and it's going to have sex, and it's going to have a diabolical you know doctor who has this plan to impregnate the women on board. It's very interesting. It, it is. That's a, that's a nice, simple way to put it. Yeah. It's a very interesting film. There's no doubt about that. And you mentioned 
the sex and the violence and everything. It's a carnal film. This is not just sensuality. It is a film that feels like it's bursting with some of these emotions and maybe... Sorry, that ties back to some of the fluids as well. But yeah. we only touched on this briefly with Denis at the start of that conversation. But I brought up that notion of taboo because it's a word that's actually said, maybe the first truly intelligible word that's said at the beginning of this film. The Pattinson character says it to his daughter. He's kind of laying out for her a right and a wrong when it comes to your bodily functions. And it did occur to me that this whole film, the thing I really latched onto was the way the film deals with this idea of what's natural versus what's unnatural and how we kind of navigate that terrain. Even the flashbacks we see to the young Monty, and we only get kind of glimpses and there's some discussion to fill in the blanks a little bit, that he had a friend who I think killed his dog, and so then he does something to her that lands him in trouble. That's Mm -hmm. how I read that flashback. You're looking at me as if I might. No, wrong, you, you, might, you might be right. I, I, it's pretty, it was hard for me to kind of sort yeah, that out. No, it, it is. But I think that we see this dog and then we see at another point, the dog dead. And then it's implied that he did something to hurt her. And that's that question, right? This, this animal, this, this living thing, someone does an unnatural thing to it. You then do an unnatural thing back to that person to try to enact some form of revenge, whatever it might be. All the fluids that you touched on, the way we see them in space and don't expect them, it's this totally unnatural setting, and you couldn't have anything more natural than these things that that give life and are part of forming life. But in this context where we see them coming out of machines and and they're constantly in different syringes or different devices, even that moment, there's a moment where one of the characters, Mia Guth's character, is basically flooded with her own milk. It's a, it's a moment where what would be more natural than a mother and her milk? And yet in this moment, there is something really kind of terrifying, something kind of haunting about it. She clearly is being deprived of something, if you will. It's hard to describe without seeing it. And that kind of sums up Denis in a lot of ways, maybe, that it, it's, it's hard to articulate sometimes, but the image on the screen really says so much. Well, you're talking about that difference between natural and unnatural, that conflict. I'm trying to find some diplomatic way of putting this, but there is a room in this, uh-huh. in this, in this film where, where one goes to seek sexual gratification, which of course is a, a natural impulse people are going to have, you know, particularly around in close quarters, around other attractive people. And there's this machine that I would say is a, is a much more, uh, carnal version of the orgasmatron and yeah. Woody Allen's sleeper. sleeper that is there for that gratification and, and, and when it happens it is it's quite violent and the room does not contain all of the fluids <laughs> that are released within it. It, it yes. is it's something to, to behold and yeah. it's, it, it does speak to what you're saying yeah, about, think... about the, that interesting contrast between this unnatural setting and the, the, these very natural and very gritty acts. Yeah and that's the contradiction that contrast is really what is at play throughout this whole film. Even the mission itself we've talked about is ostensibly about sustaining life and creating life through impregnation, but also through trying to find some kind of new energy source for Earth. But all we see is death and destruction. It's totally bleak and yeah. it's hopeless. And yet, somehow within these these bleakest of circumstances, there is, we see, a capacity for love, a capacity for genuine human affection and tenderness. That's the true conundrum or true contradiction really at the core of this film. And it kind of suggests, I think what the film suggests to me, it poses this question, which is when all sort of natural order fades away, 
when there's no more construct and there is no guiding force, what then is the path that you choose to take? How do you how do you still how do you still exist within that world? And we see the choices Monty makes ultimately, despite that sense of hopelessness. Yeah, I mean, I think it all starts with that premise of of having death row in, inmates on this ship, the prisoners mm-hmm. on this ship, heading toward oblivion, and and how do they react under those circumstances? And I think the conclusions that. Denis draws about humanity and our, and our capacity for creation and, and, and hope and, and love, you know, under what are terrible circumstances. And, mm-hmm. and there's, I think, a sliver of, of, of hope in this film that you can kind of grasp onto right down to the wire. Yeah, for sure. And I think another sort of contradiction we see play out, this idea of, of the space and time collapsing, which is so common in her films, the way she does use ellipsis. We also see these characters, it seems, unable to always break from their past. There are these key moments that happen, moments of of high intensity, of emotion, that we instantly then see those characters reliving a moment from their past that might be similar. So it's really woven into the the very fabric of this this story, the fact that these characters are always at odds with their very chaotic past they're very chaotic and uncertain present and really no sense of a future whatsoever i mean there there is no indication that any of the people on board did not do the crimes for which they've been convicted and and so they do bring that volatility to the table and and when these interpersonal relationships break down uh it can it can lead to Mm -hmm. a, a lot of bad things happening. There's a lot more to discuss with High Life, but probably best done when everybody has had a chance to see the film. It's out now in limited release, including here in Chicago. If you see High Life and agree or disagree with our takes, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And that is our show. At filmspotting.net, you can find 14 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. We are also asking on our main page, This week's film spotting poll, how many MCU films have you seen? So this is basically math. You really don't have to wrestle with this one. Just do the math over at filmspotting.net. If you haven't already, please do check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show, of which Scott Tobias is a co-host. You have Shazam and Big ahead, but you did just wrap up a pairing that's also wonderfully inspired us, the new Jordan Peele film in 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, that was a treat to do. I hope I hope people check that one out. Again, that's available wherever you get your podcasts, and it drops every Tuesday at midnight. Out in wide release this weekend, After, which is the story of a young woman who falls for a guy with a dark secret, and the two embark on a rocky relationship, apparently based on a YA novel, Hellboy, The new Hellboy is out. Also, Little, the body-swapping comedy with Regina Hall, Issa Rae, and Marseille Martin. Or you could go Missing Link from Leica Animation Studios. Of course, the team behind Kubo and the Two Strings, Paranorman, and Coraline. If you had to choose one of those, I'm guessing you're going with Missing Link, Scott? Without question. Yeah. In limited release, we do have the long-lost 1972 Aretha Franklin concert documentary, Amazing Grace. Peter Liu, the new film from director Mike Lee, the story of the 1819 Peterloo Massacre, where British forces attacked a peaceful pro-democracy rally in Manchester. And Teen Spirit, with Elle Fanning as a rural British teen who pursues pop stardom. It's written and directed by Max Minghella. Of course, High Life, also out. We 
definitely encourage people to see that film. Have you seen any of the others? I have seen Amazing Grace, which is a must. Yeah. An absolute must. It's an incredible piece of history. Very moving. And I've heard great things about Peterloo. I missed it when it was at Toronto. Its reputation seemed a little bit off because it wasn't. It didn't premiere at, at, at Cannes like it was expected to. But I think it's it's gotten the reception that you expect from hmm. Mike Lee movies. So I'm really excited yeah, to check that one out. I am out. as well. We're also excited about Her Smell, the latest from director Alex Ross Perry. It stars Elizabeth Moss. And we will discuss that on next week's show when Josh returns. We will also share the first film in our Stanley Donna Marathon, 1949's On the Town. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hagen. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our PA is Andy Mitchell. And we always thank Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, along with everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Bad Bad Hats from the Wide Right EP. More information at BadBadHats.com. Finally, my thank you, my sincere thank you to Scott Tobias. This was fun. Yeah, we definitely. Both, we both had a thrilling experience talking to Claire Denis and talking about her new film, and hopefully we'll have you back soon. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, enjoy your vacation. Going to get away with the family a little bit? Uh, yeah, Florida. Okay, have a good time. Thank For you. Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.